2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, I'm very happy to be welcoming back to the podcast Sam Sarma, Associate Professor and Graduate Program Director in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric at Stony Brook University, New York. Check out our interview on his book, Writing Support for International Graduate Students, published by Routledge in 2018 a must-read for every researcher and practitioner in writing development today. We are all busy people. When making appointments for work with family or friends, we all consult our phones and furrow our brows. Yeah, I think I can squeeze you in that Thursday. Does that work for you? We say that to the top of a person's head, which person bends over a phone and furrows their brow. We're all busy like that, but Sam Summer is really busy like this. Sam is a university professor and the director of a writing program. Sam is a researcher of language policy and of writing in the disciplines and of international education. And he is founding editor of the International Journal of Multidisciplinary Perspectives in Higher Education. And he has an op-ed column which covers his research interests and more. Sam is an educator who facilitates faculty training and teacher-based collaborations and institutional exchanges in South Asia, and he's traveled in South America and in Europe and in the U.S. to measure local writing pedagogies against research paradigms in his own practitioner's insights. Currently, Sam is working on two book-length projects, one exploring the historical evolution of U.S. policy and political discourses about international students, the other documenting the emergence of writing education in South Asia. This is what busy looks like, but it's busy with purpose. Busy that shows commitment. Sam Sarma is passionate about academic service, local, national, international academic service. Why should education be slowed by national borders? Sam's publications, his talks, his facilitation, and his memberships are all calls to scholars to be inspired by social movements that are driven by unselfish causes that seek social justice, that are enrooted in the local community, even as the movements are inspired by global conditions. Sam Sarma addresses the challenges in America's graduate education, and he addresses the challenges in international graduate education, and he does both from an insider's perspective. Sam Sarma goes there, talks to people, gets a real view of how they work or study, and of how they communicate. Then Sam Sarma does something for them. That's committed scholarship makes busy, and makes right. Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network, is the podcast about how knowledge gets known. We talk to educators and to editors, to writing academics and to reading academics, to those identifying with scholarship and to those identifying with communication, and of course to those identifying with both because scholarly communication aims to be the plus sign between. Scholarly Communication is about scholarship, about the research, the work, and the instruction in writing. And scholarly communication is about communication, about the selection, the production, and the dissemination of knowledge. Wherever writing and knowledge connect, there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there too, we at Scholarly scholarly Communication have our place. (laughs) So let's begin today's episode, Sam Sarma and Department of Writing and Rhetoric. Sam, welcome back to Scholarly Communication. Hi, Daniel.
0: And thank you very much again for inviting me. Uh, thank you for very much for that generous introduction. Um, one quick thing, I was actually unable to go to South America. Uh, thank you for looking things up on the on my website. Uh, that particular conference uh, was cancelled because of the Muslim ban that was badly timed, even though uh, you know it affected everybody.
2: Wow. Okay. Well, here's politics <laughs> paid, paid right the hotel. up
0: front and in our face. Yep. Yeah. It paid the hotel, a flight, and everything, and lost about a thousand dollars. Anyway, okay. out
2: of pocket. Okay. Well, thank you for the correction. It's good uh, for listeners to know that. Um, mm-hmm. But clearly, the intention was there. <laughs> um, <laughs> <I> Sam? <know. laughs>
0: we actually presented it. Uh, no, presented it on the web. Uh, uh, on the web, so that the participants there could. Um, you know, to look it up if they wanted to. And then uh, we also did a uh, significant journal article on it. Just so we, you know, we had traveled to Romania, uh, Colombia, another person, not me, uh, prior to that. And then Nepal and India, four countries to collect the data on how different, you know, people in different countries pursue and approach writing studies, uh, writing education. Uh, and that, Presenting that data, uh, that finding was, you know, banned. (laughs) The (laughs) university basically said at this point, it was so bad at the time. At this point, we can't tell, we can't guarantee that you can return from any country. If you're not a citizen, don't travel.
2: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, it's probably very good advice, I guess. I mean, for personally, uh, but not not for the research clearly. Um that that brings up interesting topics, but I think I'm going to stick a bit to my program because I actually wanted to start at your home university, Stony Brook, and um I was quite interested in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric, uh the promotion there of writing in the disciplines and also maybe if you could just sort of give us a rundown uh briefly in a sense of um the courses that you offer there, the sort of work that you do there, and the sorts of students that you tend to have. Thank you. So Stony Brook
0: University is, uh, first of all, on Long Island. Um, we call it on, not in. Uh, <laughs> um, in On Long Island, near New York, uh, and it is one of the four flagship uh, big uh, s- State University of New York system universities. It has about 26,000 students including a lot of international and multicultural multilingual students as it's close to the city Um, and in the writing uh, program it is called the program in writing and rhetoric although we also lovingly call it the writing department for short sometimes that's fine Um, the program serves students from across the university by providing them the foundational um, first-year college writing. As you know, in America, they call it first-year composition. Um, and then we also now house the um, language support program, the program in academic writing, as they call it. Uh, both the, both of them are housed in the writing program. The program was started back in the 70s, on, and one of the founding figures was Peter Elbow, one of the modern founding figures of writing studies in the United States. And uh, we also have two minors on um, writing minor um, general and then a writing minor professional writing. Uh, in addition, in, as I am the graduate program director, not the programs director. As a graduate program director, I oversee the writing certificate, the graduate writing certificate in teaching of writing. And we have been expanding services for students across the university so that we're not only serving the students that come into our programs, undergraduate and graduate, but also students across the university who could benefit from our uh, service. And you are right to highlight the service component of my work. Uh, Oftentimes I have struggled with too much service relative to the scholarly production that needs to be done and that I want to do. Uh, but at the same time, I've begun to see how the two are not in conflict. One feeds off of other, especially in fields like um, you know mine, ours. Um, and I feel passionately, very passionately about it too. So that's the writing program. We are a very teaching program. We are a very service program, but we also do some research.
2: Could you perhaps uh, yeah, could you perhaps give us just a, um, an idea of uh, how uh, the writing in the disciplines uh, works, which sorts of disciplines that you've expanded into, the sorts of collaborations that occur there mm. difficulties faced or successes had?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for, for the audience um, about the writing in the disciplines, uh, the term is sort of an extension to, uh, writing across the curriculum, uh, which basically is kind of a misnomer because uh, writing across the curriculum brings students from across the university and provides them foundational writing skills. The assumption being that, um, you know, we learn to write. Students can learn to write by isolating certain writing skills and context and, uh, and, and then practice them, right? But then, writing in the disciplines is another emerging field, uh, which assumes that students um, write to learn. They write to learn the content and the context and skills and identities of their own disciplines. That usually is done within their own disciplines, with often with, with support from writing experts. So, the writing in the disciplines is you know, seeks to pay attention to the disciplinarity and context of other disciplines. And uh, oftentimes courses are designed to to that effect by, you know, targeting specific disciplines. Uh, Oftentimes they're also embedded within the other disciplines. Uh, My own PhD doctoral dissertation was a writing in the disciplines. Uh, focus. I call myself the, the uh, writing the discipline specialist. And um, starting with my PhD, I've been uh, both investigating and integrating the teaching and research of my writing into the uh, disciplinary context beyond my own discipline. Um, and Stony Brook is, um, in some ways. Uh, does really well our program writing program does really well um, and with the writing and the the disciplines mission Um, in that it it we collaborate with faculty across the disciplines we um, connect and contribute to the curricular development um, uh, that also uh, you know oversees how writing is integrated into other disciplines such as upper division writing requirements Um, we train, colla- you know connect, collaborate with faculty at the faculty level. Um, and then we also are cognizant of students different uh, discipline the different different disciplines that the students pursue, even as we teach um, you know all the way down to the uh, first year writing up and up to the graduate writing courses. But more could be done in the sense that like some university, American universities, there are upper division writing requirements that are overseen or supervised by writing experts across campus so so we do a fairly good job but there's more room um, but kind of typical too because not a lot of universities are able to do justice to the writing and disciplines mission as you brought up
2: yeah uh, i suppose if you if i was to put it into a bit of a metaphor or a picture that the, the... The thing that I've often noticed when it comes to the writing in the disciplines, or even afterwards when it's English for special purposes, and you have writer professionals on one side of the hill, and on the other side of the hill you have the the experts, the people with the expertise in the subject matter. Both groups need to climb their side of the hill and then peek over and see what the others are doing. And it seems very much so that uh, they're – is for the writing professionals or the writing instructors or the professors at university, whoever happens to be working on subject matter outside their area, tend to come with a bit of an inferiority complex, wor- worrying about the lack of their ability to perhaps actually assist in the writing of content that is clearly you know, outside their normal scope. And on the other side of the hill, you tend to get... Uh, sometimes a superiority complex, if you like, <laughs> where uh, the content knowledge seems more valuable than um, perhaps the communication or the writing of it. Uh, is, is this an experience that you've perhaps had? Somebody who I know has uh, traveled well throughout the country and seen very many different uh, writing programs?
0: Yeah, I, Yes, I would say yes, because um, the misunderstanding of what writing is and does can actually cause that kind of dynamic. Yes. Yes. Um, And the second problem that can cause that kind of dynamic is the institutional positionality um, and and how different disciplines are treated. For example, you can imagine a university which has a robust writing program and people feel good and great and dignified uh, to work to serve the university, to work for the university. But um, if they are you know, contingent only faculty, they are not, you know, they're in the institutional mar- structurally, uh, marginalized, that kind of situation, It that what you said can uh, occur more. Otherwise, if the people have been meeting at the top of the hill or visiting each other on their different sides, one uh, trying to go there in the context, the writing teacher trying to go over to the other side of the hill and, and support the engineering faculty or the medicine faculty or the economics faculty with how to write, the appreciation tends to be tremendous Um, because the moment they realize that we actually can read and, you know, uh, and give feedback on and support and empower students to understand their own writing and collaborate with each other, the moment they find out what we're capable capable of doing, especially if we have some expertise in teaching, you know, writing with 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 an awareness of writing in the disciplines, then there's tremendous amount of respect in fact in any university you find this you know lone scholars or oftentimes quite a sizable group of scholars across the university who are appreciative of uh, writing to the point that they may not ever come to the other side of the hill where the writing experts are but they have become their own writing experts within their own uh, departments they tend to be uh, you know appreciative um, they may also feel uh, again like you to use your term superiority complex maybe like oh I can, you know if i'm going to do writing in the disciplines writing in context then i'm going to do it myself because you know i don't want people to, who really don't understand my context to be to be teaching writing but then there may be a lack of expertise in on the writing side of it they may have very outdated grammatical uh, focus um, or they, they may have very outdated sort of ossified uh, personal quirks in the name of pedagogy, right? They may not be connected to any ongoing research and um, f- findings and evidence on on effective practices of writing, uh, teaching, teaching of writing. Uh, so there, that uh, various possibilities seem to exist. But yes, there is this sense that the, the writing teacher may think I know how to teach writing, and then this person may think you don't know how to teach writing in context. And um, that gap of understanding may be filled, you know, positively or may be filled negatively, or may, there may be a vacuum.
2: That brings me to uh, something that you mentioned also at the uh, the writing department, if I may so call it, uh, the uh, graduate writing certificate, mm-hmm. or beyond that, uh, a general idea of. Providing people with the ability to become writing mentors. Uh, This happens very much at the graduate level, but it seems almost like an ideal thing that could happen beyond that into faculty and into the professions because of just what you were saying there. Somebody who has perhaps maybe some natural talent in writing some awareness of writing and also uh, appreciation of it but could seriously use to be able to pass that on the help of like you said people like us <laughs> who who would be informed enough to be able to catch them up on the research to sort of break down the bones of their old ideas of uh grammar and so on and so forth do, do you see this as a a kind of possibility that can be expanded. Maybe, maybe also you might start with just saying how the graduate writing certificate uh, works at Stony Brook. You, you got it. I mean, you got to the,
0: you know, the spirit of the whole thing. Because yes, the the graduate writing certificate is, you know, is a way to provide this additional graduate levels uh, program for, especially students in the humanities, the English study students. Um, the linguistics and cultural studies students, and if they want to, students from economics, if, if they wish, right? To understand a little bit of the pedagogy and scholarship and uh, theory and practice of uh, writing. Um, even if it is not teaching of writing, still they would be build foundational skills. And the fundamental and primary purpose of doing that would be to sensitize them to how people write in, uh, their own disciplines, how to teach them to become, uh, you know, conscious writers and readers. Um, In one of the courses that I teach, um, that is also an extension of the uh, Graduate Writing Certificate Program, Writing uh, 621, we call it the Graduate Writing Course, that can be, you know, taken by students from, any student from across the university. One of the assignments that I uh, give, just to give you an example, is called, disciplinary ethnography meaning the students uh, i use this funny metaphor of you know disciplines being tribal communities um, and every tribal community has its own rituals and um, traditions that outsiders may not understand and once you begin to see your own disciplinary community as a tribal community um, that does things that you may take for granted because they have become the norm convention but then for outsiders they look a little ritualistic, right? And then, and then the students go back to their professors and they interview their professors about what c- forms of academic communications are most important for them to be successful, uh, how they go about it, uh, pick one, maybe the process of writing an academic article and, and talk about the process, find out what were the you know, hurdles, um, the processes, experiences, Um, What the genre conventions are, what outsiders wouldn't know would take a lot of time, right? And when they come back, they talk uh, in rhetorical language, but they talk about the shared language of rhetorical analysis um, and genre analysis, but they talk about their different disciplines as if they are sort of trained to be outsiders. (laughs) Everybody such an insider at the graduate level uh, that you begin to, you know, not really Unpack things, right? And that is a powerful mode of developing mentors and it and, and teachers and, uh, and and guides and reviewers for uh, their own disciplines. In an ideal world, I, I was at the Miss at the MIT, the Michigan uh, uh, Master's Institute in, of in, in Technology, um, and I was. Uh, talking to a person who runs a program like this, basically who, who trains graduate students to go back in their discipline uh, departments and um, you know help other students to write. That's a powerful method of doing it. I ha- didn't see many universities doing it when I was traveling across the country, uh, but I know that there are some, uh, and that's a f- powerful method. The only thing is the only short... Coming of that approach, Daniel, is this? Is that they um, you train people and then they disappear? You train people and then disappear, right? It's a little expensive, I would say, in terms of cost and labor. Um, unlike other people that you train, the turnover is sort inherent, right? Not a not a bug, but a feature. And then you may become exhausted after a while.
2: I see that, yeah. I mean, uh, numbers-wise and economics-wise, I could see how that uh, certainly would play out that way. But that, that leads me right into the other question I was going to ask, or the other thought I wanted to float, um, which was the connections between writing, teaching, thinking, and communicating, which seem so integral. And I wonder if it isn't indeed part of uh, the university's mission to, let's say, Take, take this uh, uh, graduate writing certificate as an example and, and sending graduate students back into their disciplines in, in such a fantastic fashion as you sh- as you've shown just now with the with the uh, disciplinary uh, ethnography it, it's possible clearly to see that as a sort of loss for a, a writing program in a sense because you're training and losing and training and losing but if you see it on the whole level of an uh, the education of of the people in those disciplines, the education of the people at the university, the the the, the tr- not the training but the the learning that goes on in thinking and in writing, um, that thinking and writing stand so close to each other that communicating is the way that knowledge is basically shaped inside of biology or economics or wherever it might be. Uh, I suppose if you could take that bird's eye view, which is not going to pay the daily bills, but uh, the the view that sort of says this is what the university is about, I wonder if then it becomes something that well maybe needs to be better funded.
0: Yes, yes, I think we should be the lost leader product of the university. Um, when I was a kid, there was a store where sugar was always cheap, but I didn't realize my parents are actually buying other things that were not cheap from that cheaper from that store. Right, well, I, that's how I understand loss leaders. I'm not really good at the, the, the financial stuff, the economic business stuff. Right, but for convenience, let's say is that we are the sugar. We uh, the, the old man sells it for cheaper price than everybody else, um, but the customer really buy a lot more of other things. Um, and th- that, if we don't look at that, you look at it this way, then we're going to cut everything that is. Uh, a little expensive, right? But we don't also have to be expensive if we think about it from a bigger picture buzz I view to you borrow your term, which is if you actually look at the amount of knowledge and skill and disposition and, and confidence in doing all of the things that people need to do in the university, read, write, research, critic think critically, present we, we're teaching a lot of foundational skills, right? And so if you actually measure the value of that in terms of retention rates, graduates, the speed of graduation, um, the quality of work, the publication that graduate students do by the end of their uh, degree, uh, the faculty support that we provide, the if you measure all of these things in terms of the student success, in terms of time saved, in terms of time you know, uh, quality added in terms of products achieved, in terms of grants received, then you would be going into this wholeheartedly and investing yourself uh, to to exploit and mobilize the expertise of the writing support community, writing support experts on campus, right? So there is a way to, fi- must be a way to financially, uh, you know, measure all of the impacts, all of the infusion of skills and um capacities uh, into the uh, the body of students and maybe even other scholars as you know academic communication specialists academic communication mentors um, we should be actually finding ways to uh, measure that and report that uh, for example in my university I have been providing this uh, service uh, voluntary service to students from uh, across the university by now, some 470 students have registered in the last five semesters. Uh, this semester I'm on sabbatical and a student who just graduated uh, and two other students uh, offered to run that show called the dissertation writing uh, Boot Camp, dissertation and thesis writing Camp, And without any budget, without any office, nothing but a person's passion that they should not be just researching students and writing books and articles. It is kind of wrong to do that, that we should be, you know, uh, giving, uh, implementing it, practicing what we preach. So I started that program ba- basically, basically giving Friday afternoons uh, to students. And then that program has supported, uh, you know, uh, among the 470, not all everybody comes, it's free and not obligatory, half of them do. And they have finished their dissertation faster. Uh, They have written better. They have been connected more. They have been less isolated during the pandemic. And they have been uh, writing amazingly, you know, uh, 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 happy feedback as they leave and leave a word for other students. Um, So, yes, writing should not be viewed. uh, You know, academic communication, academic skills should not be viewed uh, in terms of how many students are graduating in their own program. Because we are the sort of the fertilizer for the entire uh, the, the garden. We're not just
2: the flower that you see, right? Um, and that's a great be... metaphor, that flower that you see, as you're saying. I mean, because the there's garden. two what Yeah, 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 exactly. The department or even if you like, uh, I'm just going to take the level of um, idealness one more step up and then we might come back down to earth. (laughs) The the flower, uh, as you say, uh, this product, these skills, as you were saying, which in a sense are measurable things, right? This text comes out to be more clear than the other text and so on. I mean, these are essential skills, no doubt about it. But what about the flip side of them, which is a bit what I was trying to capture with this idea of thinking, who is who, who is the biologist later on in their career researching in the lab who we would perhaps have more trust in? The one who does not see his or her disciplinary conventions or the one who is fully aware of his yeah. or her disciplinary con- conventions? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is there's, the
0: actually a, there's actually can I can I add this quickly and then you can continue. There's actually a study of teaching biology students uh, how to read and how to write biology uh, biological uh, papers in biology, especially reading. They taught how to read. Okay, reading biology is the title of the article if you want to look it up. Uh, 1995, I think Christina Haas, Um and they were tracking the progress of biology undergraduate students. Uh, as to how they learn to read and how learning to read as an intervention, teaching how to uh, how to read as an intervention makes a difference in the student's identity development as biologists. So in the beginning, the students are using this 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 impersonal they 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 for authors, right? And then as they were becoming more capable of reading, uh, they were be- being helped to read better uh, as 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 uh, members of the of the discipline. They started using the word. Uh, the word um, author's name, not they, right? And quickly enough, they were using the word we as if they belonged to the group of people um, doing that research. So they started saying, in biology, we, in biology, we. The biologists were no no longer they, but we, right? And and their writing improved because their reading improved and their uh, self-perception improved and their identity, sense of identity as biologists improved. If you actually could do that, think about students from marginalized communities who are never feel like they belong to the universities. Quickly beginning to call themselves, you know, the, this is what, how we do things. This is how we understand things. This is how we communicate things. This is how we read. This is how we write. This is how we interpret. So, uh, if you think think about it that way, then writing studies, writing and rhetoric, it is the uh, sort of the um, applied. Uh, humanities that puts these humanistic skills into the uh, into practice, into uh, giving the tools and platforms and voice and identity to all students across the university. So yes, we could. I, I don't think we are romanticizing, idealizing here. I think this is what we do.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS?
2: It's just a matter of finding the recognition, and in some cases, and at some universities and institutions, actually establishing the structures. And uh, that's, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Um, let's move outside of Stony Brook. Um, you're doing some. Uh, you're always doing research uh, next to your service, as you call it. And uh, one particular area that's caught your attention is uh, South Asia, um, an area that uh, I also understand is close to your heart, but an area that uh, has uh, caught your researcher's eye, if you like. Could you tell us about the work that you're doing there? Um, So the... um still in the back burner
0: because I'm uh, working on the other book on the sort of the history of international students and education in the United States from a you know policy and political perspective but this book on um, writing education in South Asia um, I have since we talked last time I have gathered about 30 40 interviews with uh, faculty colleagues in different universities in the region uh, the online, shift has made it easier, ironically, to talk to people and to, to do research as well as to provide support and collaborate, and, and be, and collaborate with them. The, the, the idea being that um, on the one hand, the writing studies and academic communication is rapidly emerging, not only as standalone courses, in some cases, academic programs, like in uh, India, there is a bunch of liberal arts colleges that are emerging now, and they have made writing studies and writing programs and writing centers and writing support front and central in their, you know, in how they pitch themselves to the public. Um, In countries like Nepal, my home country, where there is a lot more curricular growth, but also among faculty themselves, the interest in writing and publication has pushed the writing education in a, you know, for a different set of reasons. And so I just wanted to document what's happening um, as things are happening. And I, I wanted to take a little bit of time, even as I'm working on the other book, so that I have a little bit of a longitudinal data. Not very systematic, but really uh, trying to observe a few things and see which of the three points of uh, connection or points of attention might yield some sort of, you know, b- perspectives on the reason, on the discipline, on the... Uh, local dynamics, um, but trying to look at how do different countries and regions around the world go about developing what we in North America and Europe called writing studies, EAP, EAP, ESP, academic communication, um, right? Uh, Now, there are um, language-focused academic curriculum and programs around the world. But language is not writing. If it was, then I wouldn't have my job. So, uh, you know, for the most part, students who speak English as a native language wouldn't need to learn anything about genres and conventions, um, writing and rhetoric, uh, communication. And so, uh, in in English as a foreign language context, more than in English as a second language context, the concern about the uh, language buries everything so f- far, you know, down that it is difficult for people to foreground it and to pay, you know, specialized attention to it and to develop programs and to be funded and to be recognized. But there are people persisting and doing it. And so I wanted to sort of validate, recognize, report, theorize, and discuss how they're going about developing their own um, writing studies. And this is based on a grant that we got from the Nationals uh Council of, Teaching of uh, Teachers of Writing in the United States, my mother's pro- a professional organization. Uh, the grant is over. We did all of the work that we did for the grant, but we were, uh, I was um, sort of w- w- willing to learn, do a lot more than just writing an article for the grant. Uh, so the book is an outcome on outgrowth of the art, uh, article project uh, in collaboration with the other colleague from Romania, uh, another colleague from Nepal. I went to India to collect data uh, and I'm returning to South Asia now virtually to collect data on how writing education is emerging in in the region
2: there's two things that come to mind I I would love to come to both of them the first is probably the quickest so I guess we'll start there as you said uh, there's lots of writing instruction English is foreign language English is a second language and and as you so nicely put it, it, it the the focus on the language tends to bury the deeper rhetorical uh, writing concerns which need to be the uh, you know put into the forefront if what is you're trying to actually uh, teach is, is writing and communication mm-hmm. Um And it's it seems that the evidence actually falls on the side of you'll improve in your language if you learn the language with a purpose instead of you just learn the language generally and then go on and try to figure out how am I actually going to apply this.
0: So well put. Mm -hmm.
2: Okay. And Yeah. yeah, that that
0: just learning language for the sake of learning language doesn't yield anything, even within the learning of language. If you put. Context and purpose to the learning, for la- learning of language, even language uh, improves faster. This is why, you know, in, in schools in India and Nepal and that region, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, people have been sort of emphasizing English to a point of absurdity that you, you because they believed that the direct teach, the teaching method, right, the direct method of, that emerged, I think, so much time in the 1960s or 70s, and they haven't s- stopped going at it. Even though there's no evidence it works, which is to say that if you continue to speak and teach and you know, learn in English and especially uh, suppress and, uh, and, and avoid and, and um, punish students for speaking other languages during the school time, the school day, then English will improve. Well, it doesn't. The thing is, the students need to improve the things that they want to do and say the students need to improve the confidence and the feeling of motivation and, and, and ownership of what it is that they were trying to do. So by emptying out the the content and the context and the motivation, uh, the, the, the this simple enforcement of language itself does not really help language itself. That's this first step, right? And, and if you're really thinking about writing, then... Uh, uh, an obsessive focus on language really takes it away. It's like the farmer so obsessed with the tools that he
2: forgets the farm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good I like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the farms, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he polishes his plow until it looks like the best plow in the whole region, but he forgot the field. <laughs> yeah.
0: His plows are also outdated. They look like 1960s. <laughs>
2: Um, that brings me to the second point, and that is, uh, as uh, South Asia uh, would certainly rank among the regions of the world where, um, as you mentioned, uh, Europe or North America as being uh, places where writing development and writing support is established, and are also what is known as the global North and the ce- as being the center of publication. South Asia would mm-hmm. clearly fall on a periphery on, under these categories, and I wonder. Have you noticed any evidence so far that uh, the writing centers or the thinking about writing is aware of their context, that they're working in a direction or with particular purposes because of that? This is actually a theme of
0: most of the interviews that I've conducted so far for the the second book project. Um, um, Yes, Mm -hmm. colleagues in India, for example, have developed robust writing centers and writing programs and writing curricula. Uh, especially in the emerging uh, private liberal arts colleges. Um, And to some extent, beyond that, in public universities, there are pockets of um, academic communities that are advancing the writing centers and the writing program, writing curricula. But what's really interesting is that, especially in India, my own observation from talking to colleagues is that they are um, pitching They're marketing the American product in particular, not even European anymore, right? Not so much British as American. And then in that pitch, um, what is happening is that the deeply multilingual student population, especially as the student population suffles through the um, rural-urban dynamics that's happening, Uh, a lot of students in the classroom are really don't engaged in the content or context or the goals of education, right? Uh, English becomes a cannibalizing um, learning objective. Um, The farmer not only, you know, forgets the uh, uh, farm, also forgets farming. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But then the, 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 uh, localization is happening again in an interesting way. When I talk about how do you do it in your own way, what are the, you know, some of the uh, local contingencies and what are some of the local exigencies of the work that you do and how, what are the local um, localization and local dynamics and local adaptations. They do talk about it a lot. Um, maybe I was paying too much attention to the too much attention in English. Um, but uh, other than that, there was uh sort of localization um in the sense that for example in some context they are developing writing courses you know by asking uh, faculty from across the disciplines to come develop writing courses in the writing program um and that means an anthropologist uh, and an economist and an engineering scholar who come to the writing program are given a certain template and they develop your dream writing in the disciplines course because they are the experts in the discipline and they're teaching within the platform of the, you know, writing conscious metalinguistically metacognitively uh, savvy community of writing teachers and writing students. So that's phenomenal, right? Mm, but I think it also runs the risk of not developing the, um, the base on some of the things that have been, you know, advanced in other countries. In other words, when I was asking whether they have studied their own, you know, writing practices and pedagogies, or just inventing their own wheels, I wouldn't call it reinventing. Right? Uh, it's more like inventing the wheels. It, it also runs the risk. We are a global community, um, right? Like if there is physics, there's no need to go back and invent uh, law, the laws of motion. Um, just because it was first invented in Britain. Um, there are two extremes, right? One extreme is to re- reinvent the wheel or invent the wheel locally, uh, completely. The other extreme is to become so dependent that you're not even doing something useful locally, right? Between those two, however, I don't see a lot of transnational um, exchange of ideas, especially with between Europe and um, South Asia, in North America and South Asia, or South Asia and other parts of the world, there is an emerging interest in South Asia with the rest of East Asia. Uh, but then, within writing studies, within the emerging writing in the in the region, I don't see a lot of robust exchange beyond a focus on, on English. So I don't know. It sounds like I'm just somehow, you know, climbed the ladder of English and got where I got, and then I'm like a little. Uh, you know, a little upset with how dominating it is, but I do think, in all contexts, the farmer really should be careful not to talk to you know, not to be too obsessed with the tool, because because English or any other language is a means uh, to an end. It's a uh, it can be a sort of a platform and environment, but it's not really a goal unless you know improving English is is the is the curricular goal of, of the of your discipline. Uh, it shouldn't be, I think, by Paying less attention, we could pay more attention to it by doing justice to the other dimensions of writing. We could do justice to the learning of the language more substantively and meaningfully and purposefully.
2: And the writing could also reflect uh, other epistemologies and other kinds of knowledge. a, a, oh, wonderful, yes. book, a wonderful book oh, just yes. came up. Uh, the moment book. you put some,
0: in, you know, in interest and some respect and some attention and some value to those other local richness and resources. Uh, you are able to build English, uh, you know, proficiency in writing proficiency far more robustly. Yep.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, uh, what what I'm what I'm driving at is uh, a number of ideas that I have just recently uh, got from a, a book called Reassembling Scholarly Communications, and uh, it was just pu- just published by MIT. Speaking of MIT, MIT Press and op- as open um, open access, uh, wonderful book, and 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 that is one of the recurring themes in it. This idea that if English is imposed and if the current system of publication and reward and scholarship is imposed outside of the global north, as I'm calling it, Europe and North America, essentially, then um, the goals of science are being quashed in the same move because the goals of science are to discover and know as much as we can through all the evidence that we can gather. And we're just sort of... you know, rolling out a carpet on top of these other cultures, and uh, uh, essentially asking them to climb out from underneath it and walk on top of that same carpet instead of being on their own ground. Mm-hmm. And not to mention the knowledge application. Why are you producing science?
0: If you're producing science is for a global community of scientists... You're doing it upside down because the farmer needs to know how to better about the pesticides and the and the environment and the seeds, right? And, and the the people who build the bridge need to know how to make it better, the or the road, and people who deliver the medicine need to know how to. And then if you're not able to t- infuse knowledge, transmit knowledge back into the practitioners' world and back into the consumers' world, back into the public's world. Then you're isolating science it's dangerous if you isolate science in one language okay if you're going to teach the, and the entire world how to speak fluently the second language english that'll be fine but the, 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 no statistics of, of language speakers in the world supports that right in india for example there are some accounts that only 10 to 18 percent of people can barely understand or speak basic english but if you go to all of the metropolises of India that determine the social policies, the academic policy, the economic policy, the political uh, d- world, uh, the Hollywood, right? You see that they assume that everybody in India speaks English because it was once a British colony. Well, they have forgotten in hundred what well, in uh, since nineteen what forty seven, um, nearly eighty years. Um, people speak. The six hundred fifty major and other yet more languages of uh, of India, on a day to day basis, and it is bizarre what the city people, not the shitty people, uh, do with this assumption as to how many people uh, uh, can speak a language. They don't. So what are you going to do with the seventy eight, the eighty, you know, eighty something percentage of? Um, 82, 80 something percentage of people that really cannot function. I, I, I these days I watch some, you know, these um, Hollywood, Bollywood movies in which I see a strange, bizarre thing going on, which is, I look at the, um, the, the, the caps and the, the subtitle and the, the character is speaking in English and the subtitle is in English. Okay. You're assuming that, you know, somebody in North America who cannot understand the Indian English is being helped. What about the majority of the people in India who do not understand that English? When a character speaks in Indian English, it will be better to um, put Hindi or some other local language uh, captions, right? So that it was accessible for them.
2: Well, that's a symptom of the exact same thing we're talking about in yeah, a, schol- it's a, of a
0: gigantic consciousness and misinformation disease. It is mm. misinformed, it is misguided, it is dangerous. In other words, we ought to either teach all the farmers and the engineers and people, you know, medical professionals and people across the world how to, to consume knowledge in English and to apply knowledge in English and to produce knowledge in English if possible. Otherwise we have to preserve the multilinguality of knowledge production, dissemination, transmission, and application. Um, this is a real serious issue. The, it, like we're all running north or south or whatnot, what and somebody asks, why are you running south? Nobody knows, everybody's running. We're not asking this question. What languages should be facilitating knowledge production, dissemination, and application? all of them. uh, Is it cheaper? No. Is it difficult? Yes. Is it doable? Of course, human beings are a multilingual species,
2: at least collectively. Yeah, that's been our, uh, actually historically our normal situation. Um, What would you say though to um, a lingua franca? How would it function in that system?
0: Well, uh, as a lingua franca, among the scientists, yes. Among the anthropologists, among the writing teachers, yes. But is it a lingua franca? How far does it go? And how far do we think it should go? Right? I'm just finishing up an article in which I, um, you know, surveyed a group of people involved in a 100-person community um, in Nepal where they are, you know, writing Conducting research and writing in a three-month time span, and in the middle of it, I, as part of that larger study of writing, emerging writing education in South Asia, I collected data um, about from among the hundred or so people who are a a few, a little less than hundred people are participating. Eighty-five of them generously. contributed to the survey, and then I asked if they would be willing to do a follow-up interviews, and in the interviews it was amazing what people were saying about lingua franca in that interview. They were basically saying that um, we are constantly using other languages to facilitate the process of research and writing and publication and presentation and application of the knowledge that we created, but we are constantly assuming, it turns out, when we we're doing the survey, that we are using English much more than we're actually using it. In other words, if you ask a person, if you give a person a list of 40 activities that they do along, uh, you know, in the process of you know research and writing and publication, and tell them to write which language they, they use on the side, turns out they're actually using equal amounts of different languages that they speak, depending on who they're talking to, how which language they are good at, what language they can be and should be used. But when you ask them to generalize what language they use in research and publication, they'll say, of course, English, right? So people are basically sort of lying to themselves about English as well as each other, as well as students, as well as society. Let us get back to the actual practice and let us be honest with ourselves and with each other. And let us say, how much is English how how much good is English doing when we force English on all of these things like the carpet right? if it is not doing if the carpet is preventing the, f- the flowers from growing the you know the the soil from breathing, let us allow the soil to breathe it does more good. We may love the carpet, but it is not allowing things to happen yeah, fine if it is a particular spot in which you want to put the carpet and dance. Go ahead. It's better inside the house, right? But nobody puts the
2: carpet on the garden,
0: unless you want to kill the plants.
2: Right, right. And the other thing to consider is also, what English are we talking about? I mean, global English is, is already a well established, well, well-established idea, concept, and reality. And the idea that um, in certain disciplines, um, biology might not be the place to start, but certainly already in the social sciences, we can imagine Englishes being published that aren't the English of Webster's yeah, Dictionary. That's one
0: place to start, but I think it's sorely insufficient to talk about Englishes. It's only a... Uh, I think the whole the, the paradigm of world Englishes is... is somewhat of a uncritical way of looking at things or at least not critical enough because then you're saying that it's not okay to tell a group of students and teachers in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal to have to speak in English only English only, as they try to understand a little scientific concept and as they try to test something in the lab, right, or, or do mathematics or understand their own society and history. It's not okay to impose that, but it's okay to impose Pakistani English. It's, it's English with a different name, with a slightly different version, slightly more flexible, slightly more their own. But what about the other actual named languages living and functioning and occupying 85% of their life, society and professions? Why is education pretending in the name of English that it is okay? to use a device that, to use a means that is not working. Instead, if all the languages are allowed to, you know, function simultaneously, instead of punishing and penalizing the student for not speaking in English throughout the school day, allowing all the students to develop all of those languages, they would develop all of the things that education is supposed to develop, first of all, including English. There is a hypothesis. Uh, I forgot the name of the scholar. I think it's um, the the Crenshaw Crenshaw. I'll um, try to remember. In 1985, I think, that scholar developed the idea of called the whole linguistic hypothesis, not whole linguistic, I forgot the name also. But he basically says that if a person A has language X and language Y, supporting language X, ultimately by virtue of transfer, motivation, understanding of how communication works, how to do things in the world, is able to develop language Y as long as the person A is making the effort and has the motivation to develop language Y. Meaning, in order to improve English for a Pakistani Urdu speaking student, if you sufficiently support the Urdu to uh, communicate the science and math, and if the student is voluntarily on their own, trying to improve English. You don't have to teach English. Sounds radical, but think about it. What happens when a a kiddo in Dhaka, Bangladesh, watches Bollywood movies after Bollywood movies after Bollywood movies trying to improve their English? The moment they try to understand what's going on in the movie, they begin to catch words on their own without anybody defining or giving them a dictionary. And eventually the child learns more English than all the English that the teachers of a private school, where English is imposed, can teach. In fact, that student who's actually trying to, you know, has a goal and exerts themselves through the process of understanding the context and the story and what is happening, is able to even speak and communicate. This is what happens with the tourist guides. They're trying to get things done along the way, right? And one of my friends has actually done a dissertation doctoral dissertation on tourist guides in Nepal. They seem to speak 16 different languages, 12 different languages within limita- within the limitation of the tour guiding process, right? It is possible to do justice to language by first just to doing justice to the person, the learning, the education, and life and society and profession. Yes. So I am uh, not super impressed by the World English's framework. It is more of the same in a different name.
2: I, I, I'm very impressed by what you've just said. <laughs> um, and uh, very much on point. I, I, um, I, I very very clearly uh, follow that. And also uh, I can back it up with some uh, anecdotal and formal evidence from here in Germany, which as my listeners know is where I, where I do my podcasting from. I've been in um, language teaching here for about 15 years. And um, I can say probably with a bit of humility that Netflix has taught my students more English than I have. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> to get the back to the mother- motivation. Yeah. The motivation. Uh, get and get and F- Hollywood yeah.
2: movies. Um, uh, The level of conversational English amongst uh, German students in their 20s now is phenomenal. And it's because they love the products that are offered on Netflix and other such uh, outlets. And it, it, it goes to prove exactly what you're talking about. And it goes to show that learning language and learning to think and write are not necessarily the yeah, same
0: but things. Yes, Netflix is not going to teach them science and technology as much as is higher education needs to do, or even high school needs to do, because then there's no structure, there's no goals and outcomes, there's no measure, there's no right from wrong, there's no you know selection from junk science to real science. Uh, you may be, I don't think you'll be learning a lot of astronomy from Mandalorian.
2: <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> um i'd like to move uh to one last topic if you didn't mind and that is uh the work that you're doing uh your second book at the moment you must be writing ambidextrously i suppose <laughs> Um, In any case, uh, here uh, your focus comes back to America and it comes back to uh, the topic of your last book, which is international uh, graduate education, international graduate students. Um, I wonder if you could maybe catch us up on what the focus of that particular project is. Yes. Um, So I've been
0: collecting um, the literature, the historical, the political, the economic, and the transition in the United States in politics has really made a a much better environment in which I need to finish up the the book within the next few months. Um, And um, what the readings in the last few months has shown Uh, In addition to what I figure out while writing the last book of the the history of international students in the United States and the history of international education through the lens of policy, it turns out that uh, presidential politics in particular and national politics in general seems to be really consequential because international education is very political, right, by definition. It really follows the political winds. Even though there are a little deeper cultural and social uh, sort of uh, underpinnings of international education uh, that keep certain things more stable, uh, it, the university as a social institution is also a little more stable than political whims and, you know, the, the weather. Uh, so there is a sort of a trajectory, but they seem to respond quite well, um, you know, even more so than they respond to the dom- on the domestic front. So there is a disruption in travel, there is a diplomatic crisis with a different certain country. In the case of Iran in 1979, I think, uh, literally 48,000 students, one of the largest number of students from the world, uh, from any country collapsed into 5,000 within a matter of three and a half years, right? And those kinds of events really show in a dramatic way but then the winds are shifting, the sands are shifting, and international education has been shaped and reshaped by politics. But if we picked up one particular lens, the lens of the sort of what the presidential speeches represented, it's a fascinating. If you start with Harry Truman, um, who basically says that now that we have figured out signs a little bit. Uh, and higher education a little bit. It's time to spread this light to the rest of the world, and that's one way in which we can engage peacefully with the world. Right? And the language of peace, the language of science, and the language of language of generosity came together. Of course, it's one way of you know advancing America's influence and hegemony in the world. But I love that, you know, as a scholar, compared to. I I don't know if Einstein at the time seemed to be against all all that kind of stuff because he seemed to believe in a sort of a more world government, a global framework for advancing science and humanity alike. Uh, Not the one country at a time, you know, competing with each other in idealistic terms or violent terms. Um, But um, there were a bunch of really interesting intellectuals at the time who had a very different vision even then from a vision that I love and I admire today because of how far we have gotten by splintering the world on you know, on political lines and only seeing good to the point we have been blinded by nationalism, right? And, and I wanted to see when those, you know, complete shifting of the entire dunes of history when it comes to international students and international education. Uh, JFK, for example, used to invite... Um, international students in his in the Rose Garden, in his, in his backyard, a, a, a full 850 of them one year, and give a speech. His wife was equally interested in them. And they said, in, in particular, the, the African students should go back and talk about the experience. And let us all make sure that we give them such a great experience. And he used to talk about next semester. And I'm like, what? Uh, an American president talking about how the next semester will be for a group of students from Africa? Uh, it was fascinating how personal interest uh, seems to seems to do as well as, you know, how that seemed to shape policy. Well, now, it didn't make a big, giant difference, but it did set the tone for the university. And then the university would be able to build on it. The tone with the, you know, Trump administration, the last administration was of hostility, right? And so the university, you know, responded in a different way by becoming defensive. But the defensive posture did, you know, was happening in a very different landscape already, uh, where it was for the bottom line more than for uh, the, the vision that people used to have at the time. I was reading uh, some documentary histories of how university presidents and university organizations and how um, different international organizations and the Carnegie Mellon and uh, these other uh, Ford Foundation how all of these social forces and social institutions were responding to the presence of international students here, and the need for us to send our scholars and students around the world—the uh, the times have really, really shifted. And oftentimes we don't see the large dunes and how they've shifted when they we just look at the little paths or a little, you know, the grains of uh, at, at practice where we stand, right? We may not realize that the, the, the grounds have shifted under our, our our feet, and we're no longer able to uh, do what, what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, I find that really fascinating.
2: It is for sure, and it shows how uh, education is directly related to society, and how society is directly related to the economy and to politics. Um, I mean, the line the line uh, is unbroken. I would say. Very good. Uh, Well, uh, Sam, you've been uh, very generous with your time. Uh, I do have one last question though for you. Uh, Probably the thing staring everyone in the face has been the one thing we haven't talked about yet, and that's COVID. (laughs) You mentioned it briefly by uh, it helping out international uh, collaboration and and international research. That's the only good um, thing it did. (laughs) Okay. Um, But I I have this thought, and I'd I'd, I'd be very interested to hear your um, response to it. And it is that um, you basically start to hear two minds on the after COVID time, assuming we can get that far. And uh, the one seems to be, well, how can we arrange things so that we go back to normal? And the other seems to be that what we need to go back to is a new normal that we create. And I wonder when it comes to international study courses or even international research careers, do you see the international presence as a necessity to that? Or can you imagine a sort of digital internationalization?
0: Yeah. And I'm slightly worried and slightly excited about that. I'm of two minds also, because on the one hand, even in contexts like Nepal or, you know, Um, more so than India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, where you would say, okay, next summer, let's meet at a certain location and let's do this. So we used to burn a lot of jet fuel to get there and to get things done. We are now just saying, send me a Zoom link, right? And then we have the conversation the next day. So on the one hand, it's phenomenal. But who is it including and who is it leaving out? It may be leaving out women compared to men it may be living out the rural communities so people may not be actually going far enough um one is is the technology penetrating um and inclusive and diversified enough in its you know the, the, the in, in the in the current landscape right um is are people burning out are they having um what what is called the covid um is it burnout? There's another word, fatigue, right? Yeah, fatigue, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and does the technology afford all of the, uh, does it have the affordances to create community, to create bonds, to make an impact on the ground? Certain types of things may not be able to be done. So, Like we academics who publish and write often t- abstract things. We, we turn things into the abstract. But life, society, and profession, and, um, you know, justice, and work and living and helping and survival uh, are more concrete than uh, the academic work that we do. It's like the, you know, people that are developing the policy about education thinking everybody speaks a certain language, Hindi or Nepali or Urdu, but no, really, you have really forgotten the 75%. Um, And so um, we may be unable to do things and we may not be seeing what we are unable to do because we are not seeing we are not unable, right? And that is the danger of uh, making things less visible, more connected, but less visible, making things less just, more inclusive seeming, but really exclusive of many more. Um, so as as, as as far as we are sort of self-critical or self-reflexive, as far as we are... Um, mindful of what it is that the new norm is leaving, excluding, destroying, undermining, carpeting, to use your term, um, then maybe we will be able to do not just more, but better because we seem to be doing more and it's kind of risky that in producing a lot more scholarship, are we actually producing the kind of scholarship about the kinds of things to impact, the kinds of mechanisms, systems, dynamics in the world, to achieve the kinds of goals, to 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 achieve the kinds of justice. Um, so who knows? Will become a tribe that is even more blinded by its own has even more you know blind spots about about the world. Who knows that t- ten years, five years down the road, we adopt the technology to a point we become more isolated, and the rest of the world, rest of the you know, non-Zoomed and non-connected, non-academic community is laughing at us. I worry. I think we need to be more conscious. We might get too excited about, with our tools again. This time, not just language, but also the technology.
2: That is Wonderful closing remarks, and I'll leave it right there. Thank you very much. Uh, that is uh, Sam Sarma, and he is much, much more, as you've heard, than just the associate professor and graduate program director in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric at Stony Brook University. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Sam. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Daniel. I
0: really appreciated the work that you do with it. the this discussions about academic communication. is unparalleled. Uh, you're doing it for the good of the world um thank you very very much for today and thank you everybody for listening to our conversation
2: that's uh those are again nice words to end on and i will very quickly i'll say bye bye to everyone and see you next time here or hear you next time here on scholarly communication